though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. What brings you joy? I wonder what the answer is for you. I asked my family that question this week. Here are some of the answers that I got. From Ivy, the answer was this. Animals, friends, and family. And she almost certainly meant it in that order. She loves animals. She's animal crazy. Animals bring her great joy. Anna said, uh, music and dancing. Anna's our eight-year-old, and she's certainly got the moves. And I'd like to think I know where she gets them from. Um, Chloe said stories. Chloe, our 11-year-old, loves to have her head in a book or to listen to an audio book. Stories bring her great joy. And Becca said sewing, plants, and, true story, spending, uh, which was not a surprise to some of us. Um, very earthy things, aren't they? Things that bring us joy. I wonder what it is for you. I can find joy in a cup of tea or in a crunchy carrot uh, in the laughter of friends, or the majesty of the night sky, or in Harry Kane's right foot, uh, or in Jean's jokes, uh, Jean's jokes. Um, there are cues to joy all around us. Coming on your screens now will be a photo of a walk that Becca and I went on uh, last week. We were returning from eating great food and we were in a field of golden barley with a spectacular sunset and there was this glorious sound of birdsong. I love birdsong. It brings me joy. Jürgen Moltmann in his essay about joy says, to put it simply, the birds are singing much more than Darwin permits. The birds are joyful. And they catch us up in a God-given song. And the Bible uses very earthy descriptions for joy. The scent of perfume, the celebration of a wedding, the birth of a child, a full table of food and drink, that brings me joy, or fields flourishing in the harvest. These are pictures of joy in the Bible. And joy has been described as being alive to the goodness around us alive to the goodness around us. I'm sure all of us can remember times when we were particularly alive to the goodness around us, times in our life which were particularly marked by joy. When, when we have moments like that, we want them to last forever, don't we? We say things like, I just want to bottle up this moment and take it with me. Or we sing lines like, I wish it could be Christmas every day, just perpetual celebration and joy. Or sometimes we come across a photo of a very happy scene from our past and we say something like, I wish I could just jump back into that moment. Frederick Nietzsche said that all joy wants eternity, wants deep, deep eternity. 
but unfiltered joy never does last forever, does it? Not in our experience. I mean, on Tuesday night, if England score the first goal in the football match, there will be great joy, but I've been around for long enough to know it may not last. In fact, it has been suggested that joy is rarely known in isolation. It is often intertwined and overlapped by all sorts of other emotions and experiences, and I think that's true. And Habakkuk was a person just like us. He wanted to enjoy life as it should be, blossom on the trees, sheep in the fields, food on the table, earthy joys. But in the passage that Grace has just read out, Habakkuk is there saying, well, when all of that is gone, still I will have joy. How can he say that? How? When health is gone and finance is gone and plans have gone and pleasures have gone, how can we know joy in hardship? How did Habakkuk get there? Well, he didn't start there. Let me tell you a little bit about Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah, and he lived in the 600s BC, so over two and a half thousand years ago, a long time ago. And he'd experienced life under bad kings in Judah, and he'd seen on the horizon the rising Babylonian Empire. Tim Mackey explains that the book of Habakkuk voices the prophet's personal struggle to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. It's a book of lament, ending in joy, beginning with complaint. Habakkuk complains to God at what he's experiencing and seeing all around him, suffering, injustice, exploitation, greed, hypocrisy. You can read all about it in just the three short chapters that make up the book. And suffering can come in many different forms, can't it? And none of us escape it. It's as much a part of life as birdsong. I know many of you are just all too familiar with suffering. And personal suffering can sometimes look like a serious illness or a chronic condition. It can look like the loss of a job or the stress of a job. It can look like financial insecurity, a mental breakdown. I had one of those five years ago. It can look like family worries or loneliness or body image concerns or identity uncertainty, heartbreak, grief. Personal suffering has many faces. And the Bible is full of expressions of sorrow and lament appropriate to such times. The Bible knows that life is often hard. And then there's the suffering that goes on around us too, which might not directly impact, but we still are exposed to it. There is this constant undercurrent of suffering in the world caused by injustice and oppression and greed and hypocrisy and violence and disease and pandemic. How can we be joyful when we're hurting? And how can we be joyful when others are hurting around us? Habakkuk is wrestling with these questions. In his situation, the suffering is particularly to do with the wickedness of people. He wants God to do something, set the world to rights, bring about the conditions for joy. And God promises through the book, he promises the prophet that he will act to put things to rights in judgment and in mercy. 
though it may look very different to what Habakkuk expects, and it may be on a time scale that he would not choose. Still, the righteous shall live by faith, Habakkuk is told in chapter 2, verse 4. And then he's taken on a journey that brings him to a grounding for joy, even in painful circumstances. What is that grounding? Well, we've got such a little time to tackle such a big question, but let's just take a look and see if we can see just some common threads coming through from what we see in his prayer, in Habakkuk's prayer. Firstly, we see him facing reality. Habakkuk is not an always look on the bright side of life kind of a guy. You know, you don't, you're not going to see him going, da-da, 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 da-da. Even the song's a bit annoying. And he's not a, a stiff upper lip kind of a guy either. And he's not got an emotional constitution of iron, like just happy vibes flowing from him all the time. No, and he's not in denial. Joy does not demand that of us. Pretending that everything is okay is not joy. Joy is far richer and deeper than that. Mary Moschello is an academic pastoral theologian, and she writes, I have found in my research, lived experiences of suffering and joy are not polar opposites, but often close companions. And she says, joy involves being awake and not numb, attuned to life in the present moment with all of its sweetness as well as its sorrows. Attuned to life in the present moment with all of its sweetness and all of its sorrows. You see, Habakkuk certainly hopes for a time when the fig tree buds and the vines produce grapes and the fields are full of crops because those are the usual conditions for joy. And it's okay for us to pray for God's intervention to provide the usual conditions for joy, to pray for healing and provision and change in our circumstances. Because if you read to the end of the Bible, you see that such conditions are where the story is headed. But Habakkuk is attuned to the sweetness and the sorrow in the present moment. He's not attaching his joy to his circumstances because those favorable circumstances are not guaranteed in the here and now. Habakkuk is staring down at the prospect of Babylonian in invasion and it's not a bed of roses. And it can be hard sometimes to face the reality of suffering, can't it? We've seen that this year with the pandemic. We've had COVID deniers not wanting to believe that it's real. Those of us who work in healthcare know it is, it really is. We've had people denying that there is any such thing as structural injustice or prejudice or abuse in our systems. But the facts say otherwise. Joy does not mean refusing to see what is around us. Andy McCulloch spoke to us about that just a few Weeks ago, change begins with seeing, he says. And joy will drive us to seek change on behalf of the suffering and the oppressed, to push against injustice, to comfort the suffering, because we know the direction in which God's story is headed. And so every move in that direction is a sign of the future brought into the present. But Habakkuk faces reality. Though there be no sheep in the field, no crops to harvest, yet I will rejoice, he says. 
yet I will rejoice. Rejoice in what? Rejoice in suffering itself? No, that would be masochism. Rejoice in circumstances? No, they go up and down like a yo-yo. Rejoice in personal resilience? No, I for one have found that that is a fragile thing. No, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. Joy has an external source. It is not an emotional superpower that some people have and some people don't, or some people just need to work on. It's, a, it's deeper than a feeling. You know, those of us who have struggled with mental illness will know that at certain times, being asked to feel more positive is like asking a man with a broken leg to do the high jump. He can't. And it's cruel to ask him to do that. Joy's source is not internal. Joy's source is external. But if the external source is life circumstances here and now, which it is for many, then our joy will be as fragile as the weather. Joy is drawn by a good outside of ourselves. But for something to elicit joy in us, we must be able to see it as good. We must be able to perceive the value of it. For example, my six-year-old Ivy, she loves puppies. When she sees a puppy, she is just overwhelmed with joy. She loves those furry licking things. She loves them. Uh, I, on the other hand, when I see a puppy, I'm not so sure about their inherent value in our lives. I mean, when I see them, what rises within me is suspicion and the feeling that this could be hard work. Habakkuk rejoices in the Lord, for he has been convinced of his goodness. A goodness, an objective goodness, so precious that it empowers joy even in bleak circumstances, but to know the joy we need to see him. Habakkuk has found that genuine sorrow and genuine joy can coexist because the Lord is able to keep us attuned to goodness, alive to goodness in every circumstance. How? By rooting our joy in what God has done in the past by looking ahead to what he's promised in the future and by treasuring his presence in the here and now. Rooted in the past, look into the future, knowing him in the present. Habakkuk says, I will be joyful in God, my saviour. He is a God who saves. Just before the prayer that we heard read out, Habakkuk has remembered the mighty acts of God in the Exodus, events that happened in time and space when God led his people out of oppression and despair and suffering through the impassable waters. He split the sea, bringing judgment on injustice and bringing healing to his people and leading them with a pillow of fire and smoke, God with them. Now, Habakkuk did not see these things with his eyes. He was not there at the time, but the message about them has come to him. The word about God has come to him and produced within him faith and hope and love as the community of God have preserved the stories of who God is and what he has done. And, and so Habakkuk knows God. 
He knows the God who binds himself in faithful commitment to his people. That's why God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a God who binds himself in covenant love and faithfulness. And so remembering the exodus of the past, Habakkuk is able to look ahead to a greater exodus still to come. God has acted. He will act again in judgment and in mercy to put the world to rights. And Habakkuk looks to the appearing of God's promised one. Joy grounded in the past, looking to the future, treasuring God in the present. In the present, Habakkuk's knowing God in prayer and in worship. He is the God who binds himself. Or as the psalmist puts it, he is an ever-present help in times of trouble. You can be sure that in your troubled times, any comfort that you receive flows from God to you. Though often it will come through human hands, whether they realise it's God working through them or not. He is our ever-present help in times of trouble. And Oasis, what Habakkuk was looking ahead to, we now see. We see not because we were there, but because the message has come to us. The report of what has happened, of what God has done in Christ. Emmanuel, God with us, Messiah, King, Lord, Saviour. The one by whose action and through whose presence we can know deep joy even amidst the sorrows of life. For he is immeasurably good. N.T. Wright says, the creator, God, has announced the verdict. The world has been put right. The trees in the field clap their hands. A new world has been launched even in the midst of the present old, corrupt and decaying world. Christ crucified means that God has entered into our condition and taken on himself our sin, our sorrow, our suffering, our death, carrying them away. They are not the ultimate end of our story, though they are still a present experience. They have met their end in Christ. And Christ risen means that joy and beauty and righteousness and life is the future. One day that will be fully visible. The past event guarantees it. The future promises it. And in the present, we can cling to him and allow him to draw from us joy. This is what the Apostle Peter was writing to suffering Christians when he wrote them the letter 1 Peter. Let me read from you to you from, from chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christ is risen. Our hope is in him. And so our hope is imperishable. He has broken the back of evil and sin and death and suffering. And he will ultimately undo all sadness, making all things new. That promise is in the scripture. The resurrection guarantees it. His promise looks to the future. And even in the present, amidst grievous trials, we can know the joy of Christ. Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ for us, Christ with us. Habakkuk, he, he, he writes, or rather he prays, that the joy he knows in God makes his feet like the feet of a deer. He, it enables him to go to the heights. A deer looks pretty vulnerable and precarious on a high cliff with a sheer drop on either side, and we can sometimes feel that way ourselves. But it's able to ascend to the great heights because the Lord empowers it to do so. It gives it the right feet. Willie James Jennings talks about the improvisation of joy work. We learn to adjust to the rocky terrain of life, to find joy in every circumstance, as we improvise to see the goodness of God in all things, leaning on his people, past and present. We need help with this. We need the right feet. We need help to reach the heights like the deer so that from that vista we can look out and see the big picture of God's goodness in Christ being worked out in our lives in every moment. And God gives us that help. And it involves the community of his people. If you've got your Bible with you, if you were to look at the end of the book of Habakkuk, you'll see a little line that says, for the director of music with stringed instruments. Habakkuk's struggle and Habakkuk's prayer was meant for community and for creative expression. God sustains our joy through suffering in the context of a loving, creative community that helps us with the improvisation of joy work. We need each other. And we need ways to express the deep confluence of emotions that we often feel, being attuned to the sweetness and the sorrows of life as we know it, looking to the one who's gone through death and out the other side. And music ministers to us there. Recited words put to music can carry us into God's big story so that we know that deep joy, even within all of the conflict of life. That's why we sing songs every week. Art 
and dance and poetry and nature and bread and juice, the tastes, the textures. These are the earthy joys that carry us into a bigger story of the good God made known in Christ, crucified and risen and reigning and going to return. And every time the sun rises, it preaches that Christ is risen. The cues of joy are all around us. Oasis, we can't do this alone, we're not meant to. A community of joy carries those who are in acute suffering. That's one of the marks of God's grace. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good to me, to you, forever. This is hospitable joy, joy that's accessible to anyone experiencing life in any way, however high, however low it might be. Let's be a people who nourish this joy for one another and for the world. Mm -hmm.